0: That's BlueNile.com. Hello and you're welcome to the Mick Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now one of the most fascinating stories in recent weeks has been the rise to prominence among the general public at any rate of one Daniel Kinnehan and his subsequent apparent fall back into relative obscurity. Outside these shores, Kinahan was gaining a reputation as one of boxing's leading promoters. Then last month, it was announced that he was a key figure in putting together the biggest heavyweight fight in decades in which Tyson Fury is due to take on Anthony Joshua. Then the Gardaí, the media, the body politic in this country all had to go and spoil it all by explaining to the outside world that this man is believed to be at the head of a notorious crime family whose recent feud with another Dublin crime entity has claimed 18 lives. The High Court in Dublin has also been told that his organisation is involved in extensive drug crime and murder. Following a few weeks of that kind of pressure, Tyson Fury's people said Mr Kinnan would no longer be involved with the fighter and another vehicle he had a sports company connected with, no less than the son of the King of Bahrain, also parted ways with him. So it would appear that the bad publicity coming out of this country was having a major impact on Mr. Kennan's apparent attempts to wash himself clean of his other associations. Interestingly, in leaving the sports company, he said that he was going to pursue other interests. Now, as I'm sure you know, that's a very uh, common term, but it has an interesting ring to it in this instance. Equally fascinating, though, is that Daniel Kennan, who's a Dubliner, resides in Dubai from where, allegedly, he directs his gang, which is responsible for a good portion of the flow of drugs into this country. Now, to discuss the man at the centre of this, and particularly his modus operandi, I'm delighted to be joined by an old friend of mine from the days of Tonight with Vincent Brown, and that is security analyst with the SAR consultancy and former Garda, Sheila Brady. Sheila, you're very welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Sheila, if we could look first... Daniel Kinnan's attempts I suppose to legitimise himself in some ways it's the kind of thing that I suppose we might be used to in the movies but it's highly unusual in real life that somebody from a background like his would pursue a kind of a high profile role in legitimate business well no that's if you could call boxing a legitimate business but let's for the moment people at that level even when they're changing tack they tend to stay in the shadows don't they?
1: I think there's two things. I think the first is uh, you've sold, I suppose, in your introduction, there's something that Jay Spade says in his uh, video about the Regency shooting and uh, the Kinnahan hutch feud. Uh, it just recently it was released, Major Plans, and he said, worth a movie that would have won an Oscar. And I think this story is just that. I think when people um, are at that kind of high level of, organised criminality and we have to admit that uh, the kinahan Drug Group are an international um, uh, criminal group um, and it's not just Ireland saying it, you know, it's reflected in reports from Europol, from the European Centre for Drugs and Drug Addiction and I think when somebody or, or a body get that big, they do make personality uh, wise they make one of two choices and that's to legitimize their wealth to clean the money, so to money launder, and then go very low profile, or in this case, they legitimize their wealth into uh, shelf companies or legal companies, and then nearly have built such an ego that they have to they feel that they have to rise above and then be legitimate in a legitimate world. And I think we're seeing the second in the case of Daniel Kinahan. Um, I think he's, he's, this isn't something new. This, we can see, date this back to, you know, uh, actions of his father. But I think to see it so blatantly now within the boxing fraternity, I think it is something, as you say, movies have been made on less.
0: Yeah, and speaking of movies, um, in relation to this specifically, there was... Uh a so-called movie, a very short one that was around on YouTube there a few months back. And the gist of it was, it had high production value, so it obviously took a few bob to put together. But it was a recreation of the Regency shooting. Now, just to fill listeners in briefly in the Regency shooting, this is February 2016. I'm sure a lot of people remember this uh, boxing way in, which Daniel Kinnan was at in the Regency Hotel, Airport Road in Dublin. And... These people arrived in, some of them disguised. One was a man dressed up as a woman. Another, I think, was dressed as a guard. Started spraying the place with bullets. Daniel Kinnan was apparently the target. He got away. They ended up shooting an associate of his, David Burns, shot him dead. And that brought the feud onto a new level. And there was a number of murders in quick succession after that, believed to be in revenge killings. But a few months ago, as... Daniel Kinahan was rising uh, towards this big fight that he, he he was part of promoting. This movie was released. It was a reproduction of what had happened at the Regency, high production values, I say, but it kind of portrayed the thing as a conspiracy between the Garda and Finnegail to kill Daniel Kinahan as some part of a ploy for the upcoming election. I mean, on one level, Sheila, it was demented, but on another level. Out there in the online world, we know people, particularly who would know a lot of the background, would buy into this sort of thing.
1: But that's, it's clear from, and I'd say this is probably similar to Jay Spade's drill video, Major Plan.
0: Jay Spade, he's, he's the rapper, isn't
1: he? He's the rapper. And yeah. like uh, many of these drill videos are created by criminal gangs and other musicians, but Jay Spades, he's worked with uh, Professor Green. He's not just a flash in the pan. You know, he has a legitimate career in this area. And he was interviewed, now I should say, he was interviewed by um, MTK's, I think it's an offshoot, I'm not sure if they're...
0: MTK is the the boxing promoter, MTK.
1: Yeah, promoter um, that uh, Daniel was affiliated with, not affiliated with, um, and on and off. But they have a YouTube channel, IFL, and um, Jay Spades was interviewed for that, and he actually said, if this was um, an incident that just happened on the streets, I wouldn't do a rap about it. But the fact that it was a conspiracy against and an injustice against Daniel Kinahan, that that's why he felt he had to rap about it. So you can see this rhetoric is building around Daniel Kinnahan that he is actually the victim in this and I think this is part of a concerted effort to have a sophisticated reputational kind of management strategy that we're seeing and that has worked to get him to the highest echelons of boxing and as you say we have to take boxing as a legitimate business if we if we start suggesting that it's not I think we have to look at a lot of other sports and and have that argument too but when you take it to the son of the the king of Bahrain and his company you just wonder how the due diligence on Daniel wasn't done and we can say he has no convictions and that's a fair point but you and I know that brand values is not about convictions it's about the the you aligning with people like if you are a big brand like Nike or Adidas you align with a person or people that have the same values as you that uh, you know have the same kind of goal and direction as you and I feel that the silence of a lot of these companies would suggest that they either are fearful or they didn't do this due diligence.
0: Yeah, and uh, as I said, the production value of that thing was so good that you'd have to assume a lot of money went into it and that it's the kind of thing that quite obviously you'd imagine he got consulted by professional image makers and what have you, which just shows you the lengths he was going to in in that regard. The... um, The other thing about it, Sheila, is that he lives now in Dubai, Daniel Kinahan. And are we seeing an increasing trend for serious criminals in this country, or alleged criminals as the case may be, moving their operation offshore, even though the the thrust of what they're doing is sending drugs or whatever into this country, that they're going and living abroad?
1: Yes, I think it is. And there's a couple of reasons that kind of influence, you would say, big operators to do that. And sometimes it's like any business. There's better opportunities. You know, if a country provides better interest rates, tax rates, they go. The Kinahan moved, Daniel's father moved to Spain initially, I would say, um, influenced in part by the excellent work that CAB did when they came on the scene in the late 90s and that this kind of a uh, demonstration of wealth couldn't actually be publicly uh, displayed anymore because of the fear that it would be taken from them. And that Spain at that time, there was very little extradition because the uh, European arrest warrant hadn't come in at that stage. And it also is ar- was arguably a haven for different criminal groups, so allowed uh, the Kim- Kinahan cartel to grow with very little um, Attention from the Spanish police. It wasn't until, like I think, maybe around uh, 2008, 2009, that the Spanish police really kind of started looking at them as a potential threat to their to their activities I- in Spain. Um, and I think the same influence is there to have gone to Dubai. It's there's, there's no extradition, um, or at least there hasn't been in the past. It hasn't always been successful, but I think that's also changing um i know uh, in the netherlands have had a successful extradition of a, of one of european uh, europe's kind of most wanted recently so i think there's a lot to say that the environment is less conducive now in uh, the united arab emirates than it was in the past when the kanehens moved first and this may be a change that the the strategists of uh, daniel's kind of as we said, legitimization in to, to, um, of his money and his profile didn't take into consideration. Um, and we saw very quickly the, the um, removal of him in that position as, uh, to that Bahrainian sports company. So as I say, I think the environment is becoming less conducive and I would like to think that over the next couple of months um, it, it will be demonstrated so.
0: So, you could have a scenario whereby, as you say, the Guineans, his father, Christy, who sort of started it out, he goes back to the 70s and 80s, began in Dublin, moved to Spain, then they moved on to Dubai. I remember actually an image at the time they were arrested in Spain, a whole crowd of them. The, the, the Spanish police raided a, a, a villa, it was very high profile. And you reckon it might be possible, Sheila, in terms of what's happening, that the likes of him, they might be squeezed out further. So, <laughs> where do you go from Dubai? Do you head for South America?
1: Exactly. And this is the thing. And, and funnily enough, the Kinnans have the reputation there. You know, we talk of Operation Shovel that you referred to there in Spain, clearing them out of much of their wealth. But I was looking back, they, they supposedly at that stage had um, a, a property portfolio of over 500 million in Brazil at that time. So this is a well-connected organization. And um, the the. the opportunities they look for is places that don't have extradition that there's not a history of we'll say tight police control um of their type of um activities and also where their money can influence the powers that be and i think what we've been speaking to already is that money is talking and that it, the more money that you can can put into this legitimization this illusion of legitimacy is usually on par with the money that you can you can put behind yourself and to to the greatest extent the Kinnahans have that type of money power.
0: So for somebody in their position for example do you think there are still countries where they can uh, tap into political protection to put it that way on the basis of the amount of money they can bring in?
1: Yeah, so in the sports industry, I suppose, when you align sports and corruption, there's a lot of people talking about this sports washing, where you have uh, regimes that may have negative perceptions around human rights or compliance with certain kind of ethics and moralistic standards that we would have, uh, you know, in Europe per se, that actually they're entering sports with such money. People would argue it's already happening in Formula One, tennis, now boxing with uh, applications for European championships or the Olympics, that kind of thing that they're putting so much money behind this that it's very hard to actually not be lulled by you know the option of such financial uh, opportunities that we're willing to turn a blind eye to these potential human rights issues and as I say, sports washing is more talked about in terms of human rights but I think this process is helping people like Kinnahan, um with the structure to actually, once you have this capital, there are regimes that are out there willing to back these people.
0: And when you talk about sports watching, Sheila, is, is for, am I, would I be wrong to suggest that there might be an element to that in Qatar getting the World Cup, for instance, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, some people argue Azerbaijan getting the European Championship. Some people would say Saudi has done it uh, some people would argue in the football, why are we seeing the big English companies being bought out? You know, I think we can point fingers and everything, investigations have to, to, to take place to see if this is the case in individual cases. But I think there's enough to suggest that there is a practice um, there. And as I say, if you have the money to, meet, to, to match these regimes' interests, um, it can be a very good and lucrative partnership.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Azerbaijan. There's, there's speculation in the paper that Roy Keane might be in line for a job there. Uh, so I hope, hope Roy does his homework in terms of the kind of people out there if, if he's thinking of uh, taking that up. Um, yeah, the whole sport there is interesting. And it just struck me there, Sheila, in terms of Kinnahan and the way he's gone. And if you look at the, the other side in this notorious feud there has been in Dublin uh, with the Hutch family, and one of the principals of the Hutch family, who, who, according to all reports, is effectively in hiding for fear of his life from the Kinnons, is Jerry Hutch. And to some extent, he offers a contrast because he was a notorious, uh, certainly had a reputation for being a notorious criminal. Cab took a fortune off him. And he appeared, until this came along, to have got out of it, to have started a job. He was photographed a few times chauffeuring around celebrities and that kind of thing. And he had an interest in boxing in a local capacity, he, in, in Dublin's inner city, I think he was well regarded, despite his past in terms of that sort of thing. And I suppose you could say he was a contrast to where Kinahan was going, certainly up until the point where, and I think it was through his nephew, who was involved with the Kinans, that he got dragged into this whole um, this gang warfare, which is I don't think is an exaggeration to call it that.
1: Yeah, I think he he is kind of the, the first an example of the first uh, approach to when you make a big get out and stay low kind of approach Um, and i think to some extent you know i'd say he probably would have preferred to be in that position but whether he's in fear of it i'm sure he's in one way in fear of his life but in the other way whether i think somebody of that magnitude just sits back and takes it i don't know a part of me would wonder where whether silence is uh, part of a a greater plan, you know, to recoup, reactivate and and see what he can build behind him. I I just don't feel we've heard the end of this as a potential feud. You know, the best kind of attacks happen when you're least expecting them. Um, So I kind of would put that, say that, you know, potentially this isn't kind of over. But I think as a, as a strategy, when you're coming out of, of serious crime, to stay low, it's good. You can legitimise yourself. There's so many cases, we don't have to look for the films to, to, to demonstrate it can work. And as I say, Daniel, I just think is taking the, the, uh, the other approach. And the funny thing is, linking you back kind of a bit to the start there, part of me doesn't think he's gone away as well, taking him his name off these kind of the big fights and these companies. I think we've seen that when he supposedly sold his share in MTK after the Regency um, and then to come back as an advisor, albeit an unpaid advisor, and then to be supposedly the, introdu- the person who introduces these doctors back to MTK, we can see that he's, he's not going away. He's been taken out of the limelight, I think, to damage limitations. And if and when the need arises, he'll come back out of it. But but I think, and I wonder whether his strategists realise that when you put somebody in such a high profile position, political will, if it wasn't there in the past, they're, all, they're often put in a position now that they have to act. Ireland couldn't be seen to allow this happen, conviction or no conviction. Uh, other criminals will see this maybe potentially as a vulnerability for him. Um, So I I think, as I say, whether Angiarda Siakana or another international police force uh, use it as an opportunity to to go for him or whether um, potentially uh, uh, another player in the criminal world use it I think more has to come in this story, really, from that respect. And I I don't think he's gone away from the boxing. I just think he's been taken off the front line.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting you say about that thing about the political will, because isn't that what happened in uh, South America, for instance, in Colombia, with the likes of Pablo Escobar, who was allowed, now on a very different plane to what goes on here, I'm not suggesting for a second, politically anybody would allow criminals to operate here, but in terms of that political will, to provide the resources and the legislation to absolutely smash them. That's what happened with uh, Escobar. He got too big for his boots and uh, the elected leader says, well, hold on, this guy could be taking over the country, so we have to take him out, as I say, on a different level. But the same theme, I would say, is is operating there. Of course, we also have to remember, Sheila, that we're talking about these individuals and their strategies and that. But at ground level, what you're talking about is the currency of their wealth is drugs, and particularly in the more deprived areas, flooding inner cities with drugs, and as well as that, organising in such a way that they recruit young people in a lot of disadvantaged areas, some of whom seem no way out, and they've damaged backgrounds or whatever, recruiting them to become their foot soldiers.
1: Yeah, and I think if you look at the Kinnahan case, Daniel was elite. He entered the the criminal world at the top. The guys he employs or takes on or is associated with enter from the bottom. They don't get paid well, if get paid at all. Part of what they're asked to do is to be seen with the group. You know, they're starting very young nowadays. Um, There's this illusion that they, you know, the American dream, you can be the big boy. This is put to all of them. But Daniel never had to do that grunt work. Why at 42, he has no convictions? you have to ask, most of these young people will have been JLO'd, they'll have got into that rat race of small convictions, you know, building and building and building. At 42, to have no convictions and to be it, he was protected from, at least in my opinion, from the outset. And yet these people that that they recruit and take on board, they provide them with an illusion that they can be what Daniel is. And it has broken communities. And uh, like before, actually, I joined um, Shia Khan, I did an internship working um, with Dublin AIDS Alliance, and they had a drop-in centre for uh, IV drug users. And that was something that was really lovely about the inner city area, was that kind of community. And even though drugs had been such a scourge on it, there had been that lovely tendency of community, and now, because of this feud, people do not trust each other because people have had to take sides, family bloodlines, you know, and, and I think that's what this has broken down. And when we can talk about this illusion of wealth or legitimization of wealth, if he has to look these communities ever in the eye, he and his activities and the activities of his family and associates, be them on any side, have ruined these communities, I would say, forever. They've, they've It's not the people that are wrong. It's the, the, the conditions of an environment that he and others of his ilk created that left these communities with little other option. It would be hard for any of us, I, I wholeheartedly believe, it would be hard for any of us to avoid uh, either getting involved or have to making that tough decision of whether to get involved or not if we had been brought up in those conditions.
0: Well, I agree. Are, are and a lot of them pre, very vulnerable to the whole area of um, end up taking hard drugs and then getting addicted and becoming pawns as a result. But as you say, if he ever had to face the communities, but he certainly doesn't so far because he he, he glides at a level well above it, as you say, protected. The other thing, there, Sheila, the likes of major crime gangs like that, how do they go about washing their money, legitimizing their wealth?
1: So the simplest thing to do is to put it in industries that use cash. So things like a lot of a lot of criminals will start with things like bars, restaurants, you know, where a lot of cash is held over. So it's what you put through the till. Uh, as people get bigger, property is a good one, because if I own the property and I rent it out, then once that rent comes in, it's clean money, even if it's going into a bank account. But that's only... That only works if the bank or the country that you're doing it in doesn't have checks and balances of where this underlying money comes to buy into these industries. Um, As businesses grow, a lot of big drug uh, groups would actually try to to gain either traction or buy companies themselves in the import-export industry. It helps them bring in their commodities, but it also legitimizes it. So they, they'll start putting it into anything where there's less, con- either a country or an industry, whether there's, where there's less controls on the starting money, like where this original money comes from. And then they build from there. Once it's clean, then they pump it into bigger industries and bigger, and they grow their legitimate wealth that way. And once you do that, if you do go to another nation and your money's clean, it's very hard for that country then to to disprove where the money came from. So I would argue that there has to be legitimate businesses within that early stage of that cleaning of money, whether it's lawyers, whether it's financiers, accountants, that kind of turn the other cheek, or nations that don't have uh, strict rules on following the money where it comes from, um, that facilitate this and that they gain on the back of it. Yeah,
0: that's it. And say, for example, Sheila, I'm... a. Lawyer, I'm a very high-priced liar. I'm entering the realm of my dreams now at this stage, but say I'm a very high-priced liar and I'm representing one of these people and it comes for me to be paid. And let's just for argument's sake say my services for whatever were, was uh, 50 grand. And if one of these individuals arrives in, thank you very much, here's a briefcase full of cash. I mean, in your experience with, with so-called professional people, take that money? Could they take that money? Would they have issues around it? Or?
1: I think, and I would like to think a high percentage of people would, would have issues with it, wouldn't take it and would ask where it comes from. But I think they don't employ the at the very high level these professional lawyers. They, they, they started at such a low level they don't actually need those kind of big names that by the time they get to the big names And if they're if they're taken on as a client, they can produce the money legitimately. They can have a coming from a bank and they can have a coming so they can meet all those checks. It's very rare that somebody changes from the illegitimate world to the legitimate world overnight. So usually they've used people that would uh, kind of teeter on this border of criminality beforehand. So I would say it's they seek out the key people that will do this for them, that they just won't walk into a you know, a big branded accountancy firm or a solicitor's firm and go straight to the top. There to get this high, and I hate to give credit, but where credit is due, to get this high, you probably would have um, been exceptional in the, the legitimate world from the start. That level of entrepreneurial skills, that level of logistics, that level of networking, they're all huge skills that in the legal world you would have probably made it big anyway. Mm. So I, they 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 have
0: that know how. And the other thing about washing money, um, even as I understand it, and you, you put me right in this. Uh, for example, if I'm a, a, if the guardy suspect I have earned fortunes from, for example, drug dealing, and I have what looks like a legitimate business, can the guardy True Cab, the Criminal Assets Bureau, still come after such an individual? and say on the basis of their opinion that this money, even though it's legitimate now, was earned through crime and get an order against such a person?
1: Yeah, I think the great thing about CAB is that they actually, you know, can go for that money and that you have to prove kind of where the, the foundational money came from. So you can't just say, oh, look, from 2010 I was legitimate and here, like, So I I think CAB has been a thorn in their side, and I would argue one of the reasons they left in the first place. Um, But, you know, you can only resource CAB so much, and when the money's taken out of Ireland, it's very kind of hard then to keep, to to track that money if they go out of Europe, it's very hard to go after it. But I would say that is the type of um, system that they're afraid of, because you know, time in prison, like we saw that from Daniel's father, Christy and he used his time to study. <laughs> he used his time in prison to, to kind of expand his knowledge. Whereas taking away your money really, really impacts the next level of your business. And I would I would argue that that's one thing that Ireland uh, kind of punches above their weight in is having a unit like that.
0: And of course, we cab came into being in the mid 90s directly after two very high profile murders, uh, detective Garda Jerry McCabe and the journalist Veronica gearn who I think died within a matter of certainly months if it wasn't weeks of each other I think in 1996 and as as you say Sheila Cab is very well regarded but are the laws in the other European countries as well certainly in in terms of legislation as they are they as robust as we have in this country and and the resources are 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 there softer touches in places in Europe for people like that?
1: Yeah, I think across the world uh, th- th- there are softer touches and, and places in Europe, yes. And I think, you know, regulation is a great thing and, a, a, you know, it constricts a lot of businesses from growth, but it doesn't restrict uh, criminal groups. They just, you know, it doesn't apply to them. So they'll go to countries, they'll go to, to jurisdictions that allow them protect their wealth or make it harder to, to, uh, to come and check that kind of route and the, where the money was made. And that's what made, makes it harder. When when uh, the Kinehans went to Spain, it was very hard for the guards to follow them. And, you know, people could say they took the eye off the ball. The crime was displaced out of Ireland. So therefore, then they didn't have to, to, to kind of follow it anymore. But I don't think it's as simple as that. I think once you go into certain jurisdictions, it really is harder to, to follow the money, um, and these groups know that, and that's what that's that's why they move.
0: And Sheila, the um, the currency for crime these days, we hear a lot about cybercrime, and that is drugs still the main currency for these serious transglobal criminals.
1: The funny thing is, Mick, I think they're, they 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 uh, from from my experience they. Um, Any commodity, once it can make money. I had the opportunity to interview organised uh, criminals in a prison in Bosnia uh, a number of years ago. And I remember speaking to a very serious criminal who had operated during the war. And the interesting thing, I suppose, the criminals at that stage had a war between uh, the three groups within Bosnia, um, Bosnian Serbs, uh, Muslims and the Croats. Whereas the organ and, and very deep divisions um, and the organized criminals operated above that, you know, during the war. They had these relationships across the three groups and many more. And speaking to one of them said, Sheila, we, we don't send trucks with drugs and come back empty. So there will, there's always a flow of something. So it's very rare that we'll say drugs is a single commodity. A lot of the times you'll see going one way is hard drugs potentially the other way, synthetic drugs. Uh, firearms is usually a, c- a controlled commodity within it. It can be cigarettes. It can be anything that makes money we're seeing in the COVID-19. It's surgical masks and uh, pharmaceuticals. And I, But I, I think what we probably are seeing a slight change in is how that's transferred into financial gain. So it's not just cash anymore um there is that cryptocurrency element to it. So I would say it's it's becoming more complex because of that. But there's no I, I don't think many criminal groups are um very specific on the commodity that they trade.
0: And finally, Sheila, the um there's always been a capacity among some of these particularly very big criminals to stay one step ahead of the law. Is the law in general, and you've you've experienced right across a number of countries, but in general terms, is the law catching up with them? or are they being continually innovative and finding other ways to continue doing their business?
1: Yeah, so I think in terms of cyber between Europol and the investment into cyber crime within the European police forces. The speed to which the uh, Europol and and the national police forces are responding is a lot quicker than I would have seen in other areas. Very progressive, very uh, tech—you know, good technical know-how, and they're quick to adapt and adopt. You know, they engage a lot with private sector, which we didn't always see in other areas of traditional crime. And then there's normal policing. So the laws in themselves are good. But you have to resource the police to be able to uh, gather the evidence so those laws can take effect. And yes, when big incidents happen, like the Regency shooting, it's often quick, it's, we're often quick to say, why don't the guards react quick enough in the case of Ireland? But I think what we've seen since the Regency shooting, that once the resources were put in, the guards have actually strategically which they have to do, traditional policing, traditional investigation, but they've done it at a strategic level that is slowly dismantling this group. If they went straight for the top, somebody else would have stood in. If they went straight for the bottom, more foot soldiers would have just come on stream. They've really uh, been dedicated at dismantling the middle. So when they're ready to go to the top with cast iron cases, it will be very hard for the group to react quick enough so sometimes it's actually not the law I, I don't I think in Ireland we have very good legislation I think sometimes the resources into actually policing that could could be better but I do believe in terms of this feud that the guards have taken a very strategic um, and, and really uh, approach and really put the, the resources within to it and I think it probably hasn't happened quick enough for a lot of people and maybe the communities uh, really affected will say it definitely hasn't happened quick enough. But I think in the long run, it will have a a longer term um, uh, impact that hopefully will positively affect their lives. It's fascinating,
0: Sheila. And I suppose on so many levels, it affects all of us in society, some far more than others. Unfortunately, people who are at the front line in terms of, issues around drugs and that and, and vulnerability to being uh, taken in by these gangs but it is a very fascinating area Sheila Brady, SAR Consultancy thank you very much for joining us today uh, I'd like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon on sound thank you for listening you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff that's it for this week folks talk to you again soon thanks